This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. My guest for today's episode is my longtime friend and fellow martial arts instructor, Stephanie, who I've mentioned on this podcast before. Today, we talk about the DM-player relationship, how Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements, translates to a strong culture at the table, and the value of becoming a student of yourself. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is your friendly neighborhood, John, from the Dragon Mind D&D podcast. And uh, today I am joined by Stephanie, who is somebody I have frequently talked about behind her back on the podcast for years at this point um but uh i thought it would be cool to actually bring her on uh for all of our audience members to actually get to hear her and hear a little bit about what she does and how really i think she was an instrumental part in shifting my perspective on dungeons and dragons and ttrpgs so stephanie like who are you and what do people need to know about you what do you do what do I do? I don't know. Um, well, I play D and D. So first of all, I am I am super excited to be doing this with you. I I enjoy talking to you. I love exploring how to grow and evolve and be our best selves. And I also love D and D. So this is this is awesome. I am pumped. Um, but like like you've talked about on the podcast, um, my roots are also in the martial arts. Uh, and we actually started the same month of the same year, but I was, I was a little older, uh, when I started training. Um, but I've been, I've been doing the martial arts for 23 years now and teaching professionally for about 20. Uh, but that has actually evolved into opening various other entrepreneurial ventures with my partner, including a family education, empowerment and entertainment center called Quester's Way, uh, a fitness gym and also a coaching and consulting company that works with businesses and individuals. Um, so my experience and expertise in like my everyday life um, and my role in the businesses as, as the integrator is in building and organizing systems with humans at the center. And what is D&D if not an organized system with humans at the core of it? Well, and one of the things that's unique to the martial arts that we study and teach is its focus on personal growth and development. So Mm -hmm. martial arts is a very specific vehicle that teaches those skills very, very well. And one of the things that I found with Quester's Way as a platform is that we could find ways to find similar personal growth and development, but with other vehicles as well. So D&D is a really good example of that. It's why the tagline to this podcast is discovering our best selves through gaming, because 
there's one kind of effort that you put into something that you really care about that is also a little more serious. So with the martial arts, there's usually this tone of like self-defense, learning how to move through the world confidently. But, you know, if you get attacked, you can fend off an attacker. That's a much more serious tone that we don't always take with the kids, but tends to be at the core of what a lot of their parents are looking for. But when you start with, it's a game and it's relaxed and it really doesn't matter. You have time to mess up and nobody is going to have their life at risk or anything like that. You know, that's a very different place to begin from, even though a lot of the lessons end up overlapping. Yeah. And the the style of martial arts that we train, like you said, it is rooted in in personal growth and development, the way that we choose to teach. And also the, the style, it's rooted in Shaolin, five animal kung fu. It was designed to be something that you could do throughout your life. So there's a balance to it that some martial arts styles uh, are lacking, <laughs> to be blunt about it. But, you know, so if you take a more hard Okinawan style, they're, they're punching trees and spearing, you know, rice. And then by the time they're 40 or 50, their joints are all messed up, you know? So our, our goal is to be able to train when we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. So there's a, there's a balance of hard and soft. And that philosophy, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that that's why we've continued in the martial arts. Neither of us are super athletic-y people. Uh, I think we both have similar minds in terms of this is just the best vehicle for being our best selves. And then how fun is it that D&D has all of this overlap, especially when you get into the dynamics of the table? Because really, in the end, the martial arts is about conversation and interaction. When you're doing a technique with another person, there's a, a give and a take, and, and you're, you're playing with those dynamics, just like you do when you're communicating verbally with another human. So there's a lot of life metaphors and parallels, and that's what I think brings us both into it. Yeah, so to actually root it a little bit more into the D&D part of things, we've been circling it a little bit, but maybe just to dive a little deeper, what do you love specifically about D&D? Like, what's your favorite part of it? My favorite part of D&D is the fact that it is a structured system because my brain works in organizational structures. So when it comes to creativity, I have never been the type of person that could just make something happen out of thin air, just paint a painting or draw a picture. It always has to come from something else. So growing up, I loved to do collages because I was taking different pieces of things and pull them together. And that's how I play D&D is I take all of the different pre-constructed pieces and then that gives me a new puzzle that I can put together, which unleashes my creativity in a really fun way. And then the human dynamic part of it Uh, Humans sometimes confuse me because my brain likes systems and structures and humans are not that. So this allows for a safe space to practice in a very interesting way, which I know you've talked about on the podcast, just the the benefits it can have uh, even for, for young kids and teenagers and some adults in learning how to socially interact and seeing that kind of in your face cause and effect of when you make a choice something happens that may be positive or negative, depending on the choice that you made. Um, So I like the ability to kind of play with different aspects of my personality. And if I'm trying to work on being more patient as a human, I will try to build a, a more patient character so that I can practice that and explore it. Or if I'm looking at 
stoicism as a philosophy, then I build a character that is kind of more stoic in nature. And that allows me to explore something on a deeper level. But instead of trying to do it in everyday life, that's cluttered and messy, I'm doing this in, in the, you know, that nice little neat in <laughs> neat quote unquote environment of the table. It's a little more of a confined thing. Yeah. Well, and to stick on the structural part for a moment, one of the things that I that drew me to D&D is largely the same part in that there are mechanics to understand. Like theoretically, you could have a perfect knowledge of the rules, you know, how to best use your action, your bonus action, what spells are best to select. And the rules are there to serve you until they're not. And then you have permission to change them when they make sense. So in a lot of games like Magic the Gathering, which is a card game, or even the Pokemon card game, which I know you've played with your son, like you don't break the rules ever unless a card tells you to. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons, if you're in a specific situation and you have a fire spell, but there's water everywhere, well, now as either the player or the DM, one of us can come up with a conceptual rule that isn't written down in the book, but we can make an on-the-fly decision that makes sense given the context, and then we can discover where's the fun and where's the story going to be with that. So you also get the freedom of branching out a little bit, seeing what works and what doesn't, and then either pulling back if it doesn't work or continuing down the rabbit hole if it does. Exactly. Very good. <laughs> cool. Um, so you've been a player in a variety of different game styles with a variety of different DMs for a number of years now, very consistently. Um, so with all that experience under your belt, what do you think your strengths are on the player side of things? Oh, boy. Uh, I think I have plenty to work on as a player. Strengths are hard. I think what's tricky about this question is that I need the right environment for my true strengths to come out. Well, let's let's put you it wanna... this way. Uh, if you if you could go back in time to give yourself like one or two pieces of advice as a new player getting into it, like what would you tell yourself? Wait, hold on. This is a different question, right? It is. Yeah. If I could go back in time and give myself some advice, I think it would be to communicate my play style to the DM. But that's an interesting thing because back then I didn't know what my play style was. I didn't have the words to explain it, but I'd, we this is like a whole nother conversation, but we've used the analogy of like cat players versus dog players. <laughs> and I am definitely more of a cat player, which means that uh, you have to let me come to you. And if you try to try to you know force me into a situation, it's not gonna go very well. So I think, you know, communicating with the DM, the fact that I will tell you when I am ready to do something, don't try to force it on me. Because when I, this is, this takes a lot of me to feel safe creatively, to put my ideas out in the world. Uh, I have plenty of creative ideas in my brain, but I definitely also have, and even growing up, like, you know, as a teenager and stuff, like just self-consciousness and and self-esteem and, and that kind of thing. And that still crops up every once in a while. So when I'm putting myself out there in this creative way, it, it's very vulnerable. So I need a lot of space to make my own decisions with my own character. And if I want something to happen to my character, 
then I will say so. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that that I need to dictate every part of the campaign or the the session. It's more just like don't don't try to say what my character is feeling. Don't try to to force a heartfelt moment on her because it's not going to happen if I didn't ask for it. So it's just if you're if you're looking for a a big character moment from one of my characters, it has to happen naturally. It's not, it can't be forced by the DM. Yeah. I wonder if a different way to say it is like, you're not afraid of your character being like in danger in that, like, oh, if you target them with an attack, you're not gonna, as a player, you're not going to feel offended where like, oh no, she took damage. I can't handle this. But in terms of the catharsis that I think a lot of yes. narratively focused DMs fantasize about, uh-huh. <laughs> I think That's that a, good word. a lot of times they try to artificially engineer situations to create that catharsis. And for you as a player, it comes up organically when it makes sense and it can't really have their involvement in it. So yeah. And dog players you know, like the attention they like the I've, I've played with people who just love being a, a smaller piece of the larger theater that's happening. And that's totally cool. If, if you're like kind of going for a ride, you know, then, and you like when the DM, you know, inserts, you know, where your parents are or whatever, you know, then that's totally cool. I'm just, I'm just a cat player. So don't, don't pet me. I'm going to scratch you. If, if I didn't ask for it, then leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds harsh. It's just, it's coming from a place of self-consciousness and fear if I'm being very honest about myself. So I'm skittish. So don't, don't scare me off. <laughs> well, and I think that the same thing you've already mentioned works for a variety of different personality types. So I know for me, something that used to frustrate me as a player was kind of the opposite, which is I want to talk to the NPCs. I want to get my questions answered. And a lot of times there would be moments in games where all of a sudden the scene had to switch because my character was getting too close to figuring out something before they were supposed to, or because we had a limited time, which I find is actually scheduling is the real final boss of D and D just making sure everyone's together and everyone is in agreement about playing the same amount of time. And for me as a DM, I need the space to know, I can't just play a two hour session. We play until we're done. And what that gives me the space for is to dial in certain habits so that I can dictate when certain things will happen. But one of the habits I gave for myself was we don't move on until my players are ready. So I ask them, Mm. are you ready? So for me, for a player type like myself, where it's very investigative and very, I want to know that, you know, I'm, I've exhausted my, questions before we get the time to move on so I don't feel unresolved for players that need the space to really come out of their shell it gives them a longer time to kind of warm into it and then if they're ready it's permission based so I'm ready to move on even though I haven't really contributed a lot a lot because that's the tone of the character I'm trying to you know play for no that makes perfect sense I don't have anything to add to that. Well said, sir. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) So, um, all right. Uh, so actually just to loop this around a little bit, um, do you have a favorite class that you've, uh, you've gotten to try out and play? Favorite class. Uh, I, I, I do. So 
if I had to pick a favorite class, if I look back on, on how I like to play, it's probably, I can even get specific about uh, race too. It's probably Goliath Barbarian. I, I do, I do love me some DPR. Um, and so if I'm looking at just kind of a more tame build, uh, Barbarian is, I think my favorite. And it was from that DPR place where I came up with one of my favorite, like one shot characters to play, which is Kiki. And she is a, a Schmurf or Nerf or whatever, a deep gnome. Um, I never, I don't know how to say it, um, but she's a deep gnome who worships the sun. So she's super fun to play. And she is a multi-class. Uh, when she gets like high enough in level, she is a barbarian, paladin, rogue swashbuckler, sorcerer. And I never played her high enough in level, but uh, we had also chatted about adding in some bard if, if she got up there. Uh, so it's a very chunky multi-class, but you get to layer rage on top of smite on top of sneak attack and and she's super super duper fun uh but the one that i never expected was or is zo um she is the character that i play in gears i i love dpr and i love tanking but somehow i have fallen in love with this character uh mizonuta who is actually a bard and i would have never guessed that my favorite character of all time would have been a support character um but she is and yeah and that actually brings us i think to what we wanted to talk about today which is player dm relationship because zo would not have happened i would i would never enjoy playing a bard if it weren't for the dynamic that's been created in Gearus and at your table um, and, uh, you know, not getting too mushy about it, but the trust that, that we've established as a player and a, a DM. So I think that was the, the big topic that we thought would be fun to chat about. Yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we're we're you ready? getting started on it. Which side of the screen do you want to start with? Oh, the DM? we should definitely start with the DM and surprise the Surprise, my organizational brain does have a couple of notes that I wanted to share okay. briefly. Uh, so as I was getting ready for this, I, I realized there are some quantifiable reasons why I enjoy playing with you, which, which is what I'd like to share if you're ready. So I'm going to, I thought I would lay them out and then we can talk about each one a little bit more if you want. And the conversation that we're having is definitely intended to be the dynamic between the the DM and the player, and both absolutely hold equal responsibility for that relationship. And from a power dynamic perspective at the table, the DM is really at the helm. They're the CEO of the table, the leader of the team, the captain of the ship. So if they aren't coming from a, a balanced place, it's going to be really hard to get that magic dynamic where everyone trusts each other and you have a creative, fun, intense, fulfilling game. It really all starts and ends with the DM. So John, I have a question for you and I hope the answer is yes, but have you read The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz? I read The Flapjacket. 
Oh, John. All right. Well, it's, a, it's an excellent book. Um, and the, the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom. And it shares ancient Toltec wisdom from a modern perspective. So for everyone out there, it is a, a beautiful, beautifully written, easy read. And I'd recommend it to anyone that wants to be their best self in gaming or in any other aspects of their life. So like I said, while I was prepping for this conversation, my brain naturally started looking for some sort of system to organize my thoughts around. And I realized that at least to some degree, you follow all four agreements from this book as a DM and as a human. And that's why I enjoy playing with you. And I mean, we both know that you are not perfect, but you, you do always strive to be your best self, which is why you started this podcast and why you've created, in my opinion, a strongly bonded table that is blossoming with creativity and connection and trust. So take a moment to deflate your ego. I know there's a lot of compliments, <laughs> but uh, all right. So, so here we go. So I'm going to riff through all four of them and then we can chat because there's, there may be some interplay as we get into them and it might just be easier to get it all out there from the start. Uh, so the four agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz, great book. Everyone should go read it. Uh, but agreement number one is be impeccable with your word. So right out of the gate, when you started Gearist, you had the reference doc that pre-framed the world and the play style and the expectations from the beginning. And that has been your guiding principle throughout. So you, you showed us up front with your word, what to expect, and you've, you've stayed true to that. And you're also very respectfully straightforward in the way that you communicate, both as a DM and as a player. So there's a lot of encouragement and trying to help people figure out how to make things work and let it be their own experience. But you also just say no when it's time to say no. And you do that as a friend too, where you're just like, nah, going home, you know? And that's, <laughs> and that, that's something that I appreciate so much because for me personally, just, I don't know, the humans, again, back to that. But anyways, uh, so agreement one is be impeccable with your word. Agreement number two is don't take anything personally. And this was the one that first triggered in my brain when I was kind of thinking about this conversation is you, you allow each player to engage to the level that they're comfortable and interested. So it's kind of that dog, cat, you know, player type. And you really work to recognize the player at the table as the human that they are away from the table, meaning you're forgiving of faults and you recognize when someone's just having a bad day or, you know, outside stuff is kind of encroaching on, you know, their mood at the table that day. Um, and you also recognize each individual person's value. So even when someone is being a little bit frustrating, you know, you always come back around to recognizing who they are as a person and what they bring to the table. So that's number two, don't take anything personally. So you don't take it personal when someone's being difficult at the table, basically. Um, number three is don't make assumptions. So you do loose prep for your sessions to accommodate the interests of your players. And you have the rules clearly defined from the start, like I mentioned before with the reference document, instead of assuming that everyone's coming from the same place and understands the same rules and has the same play style. Uh, and in conjunction with that, the session zeros that you run 
which I would love to dissect with you on another episode at some point, if it's appropriate. Um, those all make sure that that we're all on the same page. So you don't make any assumption about what your players want or what they know. And then the last one, agreement number four is always do your best. And your commitment is to the table, not the story or your world or something like that, something that's coming from you. It's to the, the dynamic of everyone at the table. So it's got to be fun for us as the players. And it also, it does need to be fun for you too. You get a vote as someone at the table, especially the one doing the most work at the table. And you always make it right by each player for each player as best that you can while staying aware and respectful of everybody else that's also at the table uh, and staying true to your word, which was the clearly established reference document that you set out from the beginning. So yeah, so be impeccable with your words. Don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. Mic drop. All right. This is where uh, <laughs> I add in the fifth one too, because uh, yes. added in his son added in the fifth one, which is be skeptical, but learn to listen. Yes. And that's, yes, definitely. I do think that that's also really valuable because there's a lot of times when you look at the rules of Dungeons and Dragons to come back to the structure that you love so much where I think one of the things that makes gear special is that I'm going to toot my own horn because I haven't gotten my ego inflated enough, but you know, and this actually, this was also a community effort. We really looked at the default vehicle of communication for D and D and we were skeptical about if that was the best way to do it. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of advice in the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide, like, discourage metagame thinking. You don't want your players aware that they're playing a game. You want them immersed in the narrative. And yeah, your face says it all. For your viewers, she gave me a <laughs> face. Which <laughs> yeah, no. I, I found that the opposite. I wish I wish yeah. I could immerse that much in the game, but I'm my yeah, my self-esteem would not I or just self-consciousness would not allow that to happen. And that's I would say that that's one of the reasons why I appreciate you as a DM too, because you allow me to ask you questions and you don't, you know, make me feel bad because I lean on you for the mechanics because you're into it. So, you know, it, but I, I oftentimes call you with like, what's my armor class again? You know, and how do you calculate this? Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I'm not, I, I'm getting hot just thinking about, basically going into this full immersion acting mode. You know, I no, I can't do that. But, you know, you've talked about it, writing it. I can write because I can backspace. I can think about it, you know, and there's like this detachment that allows me to have creative expression without feeling as self-conscious about it. So, yeah, I interrupted you. but you Yeah, no, that's OK. Um, but the. Uh... <laughs> And this whole metagaming thing, one of the things that I theorize and has pretty much been proven true for the past two years is immersion, first of all, is permission-based. I think a lot of DMs try to force immersion, kind of like what you were talking about. And that's one of those things where, again, I'm the same way. If you try to force an immersive experience on me, I'm probably going to reject it um, just because uh, it's not what I'm interested in. But the whole, you want to try to 
lower metagame thinking. It depends on what your mode is. So if you're reading a book, that's a completely different experience than a spontaneous interactive game setting with numbers and quantities being thrown around all the time. The reason we can't discourage metagame thinking is because metagaming is part of the game's design. In the world, when a monster gets hit, there isn't a literal 63 popping above their head to let them know I've been dealt 63 points of damage, but that's part of the exchange of information we do at the table. Later then we use the record of the written word, like you mentioned, to compose it into an immersive narrative that you can really lose yourself in. Yeah, and I think that's a, another potential topic of conversation that you actually may have talked about in another podcast too, is just different learning and communication styles. Because for me personally, audible information, I'm really bad at absorbing. I, I kind of, I'm definitely a more visual person, but I need to see it, ideally also hear it, and then even better interact with it. And honestly, most people do best when they have all three inputs, you know, to, to learn something new. But yeah, if you want me to have an immersive environment when I'm sitting at a table and I can't actually see the room, I, I, I have to ask some metagame questions. And then if you're asking me to process it audibly exclusively, now I'm going to have to back up three steps and ask you again for, for clarity. Cause I, if you give me the long description, if you want me to actually process it, you're going to have to follow it up with the bullet points. You know, I can't, I can't do a long lore drop and actually process the information, you know, and that's just the way that my brain works. So the, you know, as the, as the DM, I think the responsibility is to be respectful and as accommodating as possible to different player styles. And as the player, you need to learn that about yourself, like actually be a student of yourself and, and learn how you game best and how you communicate best. Cause that's really what this game comes down to is communication. And then you, you need to, you need to tell your DM and then you need to be open to your DM style and everybody else at the table. You can't just insist on having everything be your way. That's not fair. And that's not what I'm talking about here, but it's, it's just finding, you know, not every group dynamics going to work, but there needs to be that open flow of communication. And then the more everyone gets on the same page and respects everybody else's communication style and play style, the more fun you're going to be able to have. And maybe that means that someone isn't a fit for that group. And that's unfortunate, you know, but it's better that everyone finds a place that, that fits for them, you know, and especially with roll 20, I've thought about, I haven't done it yet because I'm people scare me, but I, <laughs> as humans in general, make me nervous, but you know, you can log in to like, you can join games and, and test out different groups. I thought of, I don't know, the, the Star Trek tabletop game, like piqued my interest, but then I'd have to talk to humans and I don't know if I'm ready for that, but. <laughs> games are fun to play. Whether it's chess, Mario Kart, or Dungeons and Dragons, we've all sat down to play a game with our friends before. But what is it that keeps us coming back to our favorites? How do developers craft the experiences that keep us this engaged? I'm Sully, host of the podcast, Fun But Why. Join us as we talk to game industry professionals and break down the levels, mechanics, and design of their favorite gaming experiences. Fun But Why releases new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Yeah. And I think another thing with like to stick to the DM's responsibility in terms of creating an enjoyable experience, there are a lot of things that lined up that made Gearis kind of just work out like the stars align. Unfortunately, one of those things was the pandemic because it forced us to move online. Um, if you had told me in 2019, you're going to be DMing all your games online in 2022, I wouldn't have believed you because again, I just didn't know the strengths of the tools that virtual tabletops could provide. So, yeah. And we all like hanging out together. So true. Yeah. We all like but, yeah. being in each other's company, like physically. And I think that one of the, one of the things that I found to be a strength of virtual tabletops is how many tools could very quickly relay information in a way that was really kind of impossible at the table. So even things like combat, having a battle map with a grid that has a background that's accurate to what you have in your imagination, rather than just having a blank white grid and say, you're just in a forest. And then taking the time to have to draw all the little trees and then have to set up all the minis in there. All of that takes so much time and work that it really takes time away from the game and the enjoyment of the experience. Whereas being able to set up everything online in advance and then while combat is happening, being able to have a typed number of how much damage each creature has taken, those little things add up to make a really big difference. And where I think I've seen a lot of DMs get stuck is to try to take what they're used to and then translate it directly with tools that aren't necessarily best for it. So I've even tried games where instead of typing it's still voice communication over Discord, but inherent problems like lag, too many people on the server at the same time, people talking over each other, it slows down everything and it's a worse substitute rather than a pivot that allows for a smoother time. Yeah, and I think we are we are obviously converts of the the online gaming, tabletop gaming platform. And all that being said, that's because it works for us. We're both kind of left brain analytical people. We enjoy creative writing. You know, you did a whole podcast episode with Ian on that, who also enjoys creative writing. So it works for us. And the thing was, we all communicated about the fact that it was ideal. And then we paid attention to what happened during the games and they kept increasingly getting better. So for our group and our dynamic, the, it, this is the right choice and it has proved itself time and again to be the right choice. But that doesn't mean, you know, I know you push this really hard on your podcast, but I know you would also say that if another style works for you, then do that style. If your group wants to be in person, if your group wants to dress up and put on elf ears and wear wizard hats, do it. Like be, that's the whole point of D and D is to find a way to creatively express yourself in a way that a lot of times the real world doesn't let us do you know there's a there is a practice and a play that we can do in dungeons and dragons and in terms of practicing just being a human that that you can't do as safely in the real world and that's one of the things that that we love about DD so be whoever you want to be just be clear about it communicate it and and make sure that you're finding a group that matches that because if you're trying to force yourself into a situation that doesn't match your interest and then you just get cranky and complain about it not being the style that you like well there's a point where that's on you you know if the whole rest of the group is cool with it and and 
recognizing the value in that setup, then, you know, that that's a time where you may need to bow out of that group or you need to decide that the value of the relationship is more important, supersedes what you think is the way that it should be played. You know, because in the end, it's human playing a very silly game. When you really like bring it down to the core, I have more dice than any human should ever have. And I know that my dice collection is probably modest compared to some, you know, D&D players. And we we pretend to be all these fantasy characters and run around with swords. And it's it's where we, we get to, to find ourselves. So to backtrack just a little bit, there is this is still kind of staying on that. Be skeptical, but learn to listen. I agree with everything that you just said. And I'm pretty sure you would agree with what I'm about to say is even if something isn't your style, it's not a bad idea to give something a try knowing that you can bow out of it because I do remember when I first sat down with the reference doc, one of the things I was very, was very resolved about was the fact we would type and there was a good amount of disagreement over that where there was a lot of skeptical individuals from my players where I said, you know, you can talk however you want. You can like, the way I put it was, if you want to do a character accent, you are more than welcome to, we're here to support it. But in order to organize the information for everyone, if it doesn't happen in chat, it doesn't happen in game. And for a lot of players that took some time to get used to, and they just, trusted the fact that I kind of knew what I was doing. And even if they weren't comfortable with it to begin with, they qu- it soon became everyone's preferred method, at least for Gearus. And every now and again, I do get a suggestion. How about we play a Gearus game in person? And I am very quick to say no. Because <laughs> for us, for this kind of game experience, I'm totally willing to do other campaigns with different styles. But for this specific style, this is what really works. And I've watched the shift happen when we try to do something in person where everything is now talking as the medium instead of the typing. And I, I watched the old pitfalls immediately pop right back up. Yeah. And off of where you started from with giving things a try and being skeptical and learn to listen and, and cycling back to communication, being really at the core of this, I think the most evolved human you can be is someone that says, I'm not sure I agree with this, but I am going to give it my 100% best effort to come at it with a positive attitude and enjoy it as best I can. And if it's not for me, I'm just telling you right now, I'm probably going to bow out. You know, that, that is a truly evolved person that can respectfully and positively give something a try that they don't agree with and, you know, listen to the other side and give it a chance, you know, and and they can hold on to their skepticism, but also allow yourself to be, don't be so full that there isn't space for new information to come in. And, you know, I I don't even want to touch the outside world outside of D and D we're going to stay in our nice little fantasy world here, but you know, how much better would the world be (laughs) if people, you know, were just willing to listen to each other a a little bit more with an open mind, you know, and give it a try. And if in the end you still don't agree, and then you respectfully go your separate ways, 
again, that's evolved human beings. There's, there's many D and D groups out there. That being said, I know they're hard to find. So when you end up with a group, it can be hard to, uh, to choose to move on. You know, if you have a smaller network of friends and, you know, joining a group online with strangers is very intimidating of an idea. Um, but you know, it's really, it's got to work for everybody. And if you're just gonna be upset the whole time or be a downer at the table or bring a toxic energy to the table, then who, who are you really serving here? Yeah. Um, I think that again, if you're listening to this and you want to read into all of the connections that this could possibly mean for your life and society and beyond, that's why this podcast is here. I am specifically using the D&D context for this, but I was listening to an interview um, with Matt Mercer, who is just talking about why the critical role cast works so well together and why they're such good friends. And it's because to come back to systems, they have systems in place for when things go wrong. It's not if things go wrong. And I think a lot of times DMs get this, frankly, unrealistic imagination of how amazing their campaign is going to be. And really, it doesn't matter how tight your group is. Things are going to go wrong in every single dimension. And there's been times where I've DM'd and I've accidentally really like triggered a strong emotion from a player all over the spectrum, you know, sadness, anger, joy, um, catharsis. And I didn't even mean to some of the times, but when those intense things happen, you know, what's your, what's your situation or what are the systems in place that are really going to help? And I think it does come back to that trust in communication. Yeah, no. And also that actually the agreement number two, which is don't take anything personally. Um, I, that was one where I, I know one of the situations you're referencing where you had a, a player get upset, like uh, should a very emotional reaction when something happened in game. And there was, you know, we, we talked about it afterwards about how it wasn't, I mean, you, you really took the care and the time to look at whether or not that was on your end as the D and D. And then when it seems like it was just the stress of life was really the catalyst for why there was such a strong reaction. You were, you were gentle and forgiving and, and patient and nurturing with that. You know, you weren't mad because they got upset at the table because they had a strong, you know, emotion that came up. You, you took the time to see the human, because even though we're playing this fun fantasy game and we really try to get into the immersion of it, there's always, there's always the human. And a lot of times when I'm, when I'm playing a, a character that's being uptight or snippy or sad or angry or short for some reason, I, I make sure to frequently communicate like Stephanie is fine, but so is being a witch with a B right now. I don't know what your language filters are on this podcast, but you know, like this is like, I'm cool. Like Stephanie will keep playing, but Zoe's going to walk out the room because that's what I believe her character would do. And again, that's communication because we are doing this dance between being humans in the real world and being characters in a fantasy world. And there, there needs to be some clarity. There needs to be a clear line 
drawn between the two. And, and I know we could both go down a, a rabbit hole on our opinions of, of, of that and allowing that line to blur. But I think it is very important to, to keep a clear distinction and not lose yourself and, and also forget to communicate to other people at the table the difference between how you're feeling as a human and, and how your player is acting in that moment. It's, it hasn't ever crystallized um, in this way before, but listening to you say it, I think this game has an extraordinary amount of value for when you can use your characters, like you said earlier, to best be a student of yourself. Where you make a decision as a character, you reflect, why did I make that decision for that character? Because that's a different level of responsibility than it is for making a decision for yourself. Um, where I think what's a really interesting test of mirror maturity is when somebody else blurs the line of somebody else's character and their personality, which I've also been on the receiving end of, of you as a player must be like this because your character made this kind of decision. And so I think there can be a lot of harm that can come from that, where if I'm playing with a different player and I'm seeing their character make certain decisions, I'm now making, whether I'm conscientious of it or not, judgments about them as a person. But for me, mm -hmm. I can use my character to help diagnose certain things about me as a person to help me grow and evolve. So yeah, I, agreement number three is don't make assumptions. Right. You know, and that's, so it's, that's a core part of it is, you know, yeah, recognizing character and player and someone that's trying something versus someone that's, you know, ingrained and invested and, you know, just separate teasing out all of those little pieces and being open. Oh, I wonder if there is, I'm sure there's things out there that exist, but I mean, you and Ian have talked about creating template type stuff online too, but, uh, and I think we actually talked about this the other day too, but like a rules of engagement kind of um, contract, whether it's written or verbal or just built over time. Like we've known each other for like 20 yeah. years now um, through <laughs> all kinds of different stages, you know, cause you were eight Mm -hmm. when you started and I was, I was 13 five. right no five right no I was when you were eight was when we actually started like interacting so oh. there's been like this very interesting like when I knew that you existed because yeah. I was always in an older class than you yep, were because yep. I was eight years yeah, I am eight years older than you so yeah I, I really think that I guess this is another good way to think about it especially when you're a new DM because one of the things I find is if somebody listens to this and they hear people telling me how amazing I am and then they say, well, how can I be like that? Like now, a lot mm. of times what happens is they start using a lot of tools that I talk about without the core understanding of how those tools got developed by doing a lot of things wrong and noticing what was going wrong and also recognizing when things were going right. Because I do have the feeling that there are some people that only recognize when things go wrong. And then they recognize so much when things go right, they're not, they're blind to the things that are going wrong. So I think one of the things to remember is a lot of these tools are developed over time by getting to know your group, open and honest communication. It takes time to get more skillful at, 
but it's not something you, you have to hold off on practicing. So there are sometimes I think Ian and I maybe on the podcast have talked about the role of in-betweens in Gears specifically, where in between group sessions, sometimes I'll have one, maybe two players go off and have a, a side mission or a side scene with each other that they write up in. Yeah, a sorry about that. Oh, no problem. But uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was, that was my fault. <laughs> yeah. So, but they end up being incredibly powerful in the context of developing a group session and helping me as the DM figure out where a character's headspace is at. So as I start to design encounters meant to kind of poke and prod at that character's situation, I can organically see how some interactions start to almost feel like they come out of nowhere. But then when the story is finished, the in-between is part of that. So all of a sudden there's all this context and players get to relive experiences with a whole new frame. That is not something anybody needs to do. And doing that is not going to make your game better. It's just something that we've found have made, has made this game better because we've practiced all the other stuff ahead of time. And I really think that when it comes to, oh, because you're talking about player contracts and really when it comes to the DM player relationship, really the DM, I think just needs to talk a lot less and listen a lot more. And it's like if you think about an RPG video game, yes, there are times where there are longer cutscenes, but really it's you walk into a new area, you walk up to a shiny thing, you hit the A button, you get a short description. Those are the best RPGs, not the one where it's 17 hours of dialogue back and forth. That's not a game, that's a novel. So I think a lot of times it would actually do DMs a lot of good to think of their games as games and not think of their games as stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at the... So at the, I know that your intention was starting this podcast and the reason you named it Dragon Mind was because you wanted to look at tabletop gaming, especially D&D, from this meta perspective of how it can add value to your life and to you as a human, which again, like we talked about way in the beginning, is why we also do the martial arts. So, and I know there was a podcast where you talked about, you know, the, the five animals um, which again, where our system is rooted in Shaolin five animal Kung Fu. So if you've ever seen the movie Kung Fu Panda, that was it. They actually did a really good job with that movie. You can learn about the Shaolin martial arts just from watching a silly panda. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, the, the dragon is the wisdom mind of all of these different styles. Um, and you know, we, you got tiger crane, leopard snake, and there are four different styles of leadership and communication and problem solving, and also beating somebody up if you need to defend yourself. Um, and then the dragon mind is understanding the wisdom to know how and when to use each of those styles. So it's, it's having all of those tools in your toolbox and then understanding when is it's the appropriate time to use them. And in the end, and the, the contribution I would love to have on this podcast, if you want me to come back around, is just making the connections to being a student of yourself. Because that's that I think that's the theme of that you are going for. And it's the thing that we end up randomly calling each other up at random hours of the day to have conversations about is the connections between the D&D &D experience and 
life and the things that we learn about ourselves and each other and yeah, other people, you know, other players and, and how we communicate. And I personally love reading and love learning. So I have read multiple books. I, I, read, I have a list going of, of connections that I made that would be cool things to talk about on here that are rooted in, you know, people smarter than me, borrowing brilliance from, I, I mean, names that have come into my head during this podcast are Dave Ramsey and Cal Newport and Anne Lamont and, you know, not typical people that like, they, I don't know if any of them even know what D and D is maybe Cal Newport. He seems like he might be the type, but I don't know. Um, but uh, taking the time, like if you really want to be an amazing DM, I know that um, being a professional DM is like an option in the world now. If you want to do that, you need to become a student of yourself and a student of communication and a student of just people, you know, and how people think and act outside of you, because you are the only one that sees the world the way you see it. Everyone else has their own perspective. They're showing up to their table with a different education, different influences, different inspirations, just an entirely different life experience. And the only way to, to really be able to connect with lots of different types of people at the table is if you learn how those different types of people think. And isn't that part of why we play D&D too? Because we get to step into other people's shoes and kind of play act and see what it's like from this other perspective. So I, I, what I would strongly encourage if, if there, if there, those of you out there that are DMs listening or players listening, if, if you're hearing John talk and you're like, yeah, that sounds really cool. I know a part of what John's been able to produce is the fact that he's been in the environment of our dojo where there is a lot of reading and a lot of learning and a lot of exploring, you know, different topics and barring brilliance, you know, using things from someone like a Tony Robbins or a John Acuff or again, a Dave Ramsey, you know, all of these different people from totally different walks of life, there's, there's always gems that you can take. And if you want to be successful in anything you do in life, you've got to be a lifelong learner and you've got to be a student of yourself. All right. It's time for character build breakdown. Our segment where listeners can submit their character builds for a quick analysis and recommendations to submit your own build head over to the Dragonmind channel in one of our two Discord servers, the Darkmoor Podcast Community Discord, or the Tavern by Incendium D&D. Both of those in the description below. Today's build was submitted by a friend and fellow Dungeon Master, Leo, who says, My go-to build is a Yonti Druid, and I'm wondering how to get more damage out of it. To start, on just its mechanical merits alone, Yanti is still one of the most powerful options a player can choose, even after its nerf in Monsters of the Multiverse. The Magic Resistance feature is, in my opinion, one of the strongest survivability features you can possibly ask for, and then layering a Poison Resistance on top of it just makes any Yanti build that much more formidable. Which is good, because Druids aren't exactly known for their sheer survivability. Unlike even Wizards and Sorcerers, they don't have access to a strong reaction, like shield, and while they can often prevent damage through things like wild shape and terrain control spells, 
having the extra layer of protection from the Yanti kit never hurts. Now, on to the main question here, which is getting more damage output from Druid. To start, Druid isn't exactly known as being a heavy damage dealing class, especially when compared to martial characters like paladins and rogues, or even other spellcasters like warlocks and wizards. But that doesn't mean that damage dealing possibility doesn't exist. A common recommendation for druid players looking for damage output is to choose the Circle of the Moon, which allows your druid to wild shape as a bonus action into a beast with up to a CR of 1, and then starting at level 6, I believe you also get more uh, options for, uh, for your beast's CR. And this is actually pretty significant, since not only does it offer a great physical stat boost, but it offers a strong buffer of extra hit points, which helps with that survivability. Eventually, your beast form attacks even become magical, which in some cases will actually allow you to outperform martial characters. However, not every player wants to play a druid whose primary combat strategy involves turning into a beast. So, if we're playing a druid that's more focused on spellcasting, what are some spells that can help us increase our damage output? Well, one that I've always had some luck with is Ice Knife from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. I think this might be the closest thing druids have to a blast spell. I mean, I know they have Thunder Wave, but let's let's get into this one. Ice Knife both has an attack to hit a single target, followed by a dexterity save for an explosion effect, meaning that if luck is on your side for rolls, a target could take 1d10 piercing damage from the attack roll, plus 2d6 cold damage from the explosion, and that explosion also hits uh, all creatures within 5 feet of them as well. Unlike other popular first level spells like Burning Hands or Thunder Wave, Ice Knife has a sharper damage distribution that allows you to stack more damage to a single target while also dealing secondary uh, damage to the creatures around them. And even at higher levels, I found this a really useful spell. There were times I'd get in uh, situations where I'd have a nice setup with a terrain control spell like Spike Growth, which I'd be concentrating on, which also limits other options, because like other spellcasters, a lot of druid spells require concentration, meaning that if you start to cast too many spells together, you're really losing out on the big effect of keeping that concentration up over time. If no one needed healing, because this was actually a really pretty optimized group that I was playing with at the time, um, a lot of times my best option really would just be to throw a ranged ice knife at the big bad. And looking back on it, it's kind of hilarious how many big bosses I finished with a piddly little ice knife. But hey, I found a lot of success with it. Another really solid damage dealing option is uh, the spell Heat Metal, which is also available to bards. And what I found makes this spell so good is that it doesn't require any kind of roll in order to deal its 2d8 fire damage. It's automatic as soon as you cast the spell. And look, 2d8 is not the most damaging spell in the game, but over time it can be significant. Like many options, this spell can deal a lot of damage if you take the time to concentrate on it. So for example, let's say you're fighting an enemy wearing metal armor. You know, they take 2d8 fire damage automatically as you cast the spell, and then 
Each subsequent turn, when you use your bonus action while maintaining concentration, they take that 2d8 damage again. So let's look at another common blast spell at the same level, which could be, well, let's say Shatter. So Shatter uh, deals 3d8 thunder damage in a small area of effect. But after that 3d8 damage is done, the spell is done. If Heat Metal lasts even two turns, you're dealing 4d8 fire damage, meaning you're dealing an extra d8 to the target. And the damage just keeps building as the longer the fight goes on. It's literally a slow burn spell. But um, What's nice about Heat Metal is that it also has a control effect. So if you target a metal weapon being held by a hostile, the creature has to make a constitution save to hold on to it. If they do hold on to it, they take the 2d8 damage the next turn. Um, if they don't hold on to it, they don't take the 2d8 damage, but the they get disarmed, which can turn the tables on an otherwise difficult encounter. And there are plenty of other spells that druids have access to, like Moonbeam, Spike Growth, Flaming Sphere, that kind of follow this same philosophy. But I think overall I've kind of made my point here, which is with druids, damage dealing is about the long game, and most of the damage dealing options have secondary effects that allow them to be very versatile. And the one last thing I want to mention uh, before we wrap this up is just the uh, the role of second order damage. I think a lot of players get excited when it's their character that's rolling a lot of dice and dealing a lot of damage. But one of the druid's greatest strengths is how it improves the party's performance. For example, let's take a look at the Rogue, which can only really deal competitive damage with their sneak attack feature. However, for a sneak attack to be triggered, the Rogue needs to either have advantage on their attack roll with a ranged or finesse weapon, or have a creature that's hostile to the target within five feet of the target. And I have seen a ton of situations where meeting one of those two conditions is really difficult. But druids have the ability to create those conditions by themselves. Spells like Fairy Fire and the Restrained from Entangle can grant that rogue sneak attack, which even though they don't deal damage by themselves in terms of what the spell does, really it greatly increases your party's total damage output. In these cases, your character isn't directly contributing to the party's damage output, but because of support spells like these, the second order contribution your character is making to the party's total damage output is definitely measurable. And when I was playing a druid regularly, there were multiple times I remember being told by other players at the table that in a given combat that was really difficult, I quote unquote had the most valuable play because spells like Fairy Fire, Entangle, Spike Growth, um, these types of spells regularly change the conditions of an encounter to the party's favor. There are times I can definitely talk about, which I won't get into too much here, where the combat almost had a, like impossible difficulty, and just through uh, some simple spell combinations, our party basically made it impossible not to win. So it's just something cool that you can keep in mind if you're planning on playing a spellcaster that not only can deal damage, 
but has access to spells that can do more than one thing. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragonmind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. What becomes possible when you let go of your preconceived notions on what makes a great story? What becomes possible when we see tabletop role-playing as more than just a game and also as a vehicle for personal growth and development? What becomes possible when you let your characters live through your gameplay? This is the DM Shower Thoughts Podcast, a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network, available on iTunes and Spotify.